We're beginning a new series this morning, and I think you will. I think you're going to enjoy the next couple of months. Sometimes, if you listen to the news, you might hear folks talk about flyover country. It's what people on the east and west coasts use to describe where we live, the central part of the United States. They might describe it as a vast expanse of uninteresting wasteland. Of course, as those who live in the center of this country, we know that flyover country is actually loaded with marvelous beauty. We also know it's loaded with wonderful people and an endless supply of wonderful things to see and explore. I mean, really, amazingly, all four contenders for the world's largest ball of string are located in flyover country. For the next couple of months, we're going to spend some time in what might be considered flyover country to most Christians. Books that seem mysterious, difficult, and foreign, and so we tend to fly over and around and past them. Speaking of the prophets, those books sandwiched between the poetry books, you know, Psalms and Matthew, all those books with strange names, particularly where I'm thinking of of the the minor prophets, the twelve shorter little prophetical books, and we're going to narrow it down even more since we're only going to do this for a couple of months, and we're just going to look at all of the books of the prophets written to the northern kingdom of Israel, and there are just three of them, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. So why should we care about flyover material in the Bible? I mean... Really, what does things written by guys like Malachi, the Italian prophet, (laughs) except we're not going to talk about him, what what do things written by Amos have to do with us today? It's a great question. And the answer is, just like you know that where we live in Missouri, or even if you live in Kansas, it's not really flyover country It's significant. So, in Scripture, there's no flyover material. It's all significant. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Israelites, says this, Now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, he's saying that For those for whom the end of the ages have come, those who are living today, us, the things that happened way back then to the Israelites is not insignificant. They've happened as an example for us. And everything that's written there is for our instruction. As in all of life, if you and I refuse to learn from example and from teaching, the other way to learn is by experience and typically that's a whole lot more expensive and difficult and dangerous. Have you guys been there? So we do well to learn from example. And we do well to learn from the teaching. Even in the minor prophets. 
One of the reasons these books are so difficult for us is that they seem so strange. They happen in a time, in a setting that is very foreign to us. And so as we begin this series to look at these prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel, we would do well to get just a little bit of background. I've put some here in the book because I realize that not all of you are awake right now and maybe you'll read later. Or some folks aren't here right now. They'll miss today. But it helps to get a little background. Most of us have heard of the very first kings of the nation of Israel, Saul and David and Solomon. Together, they ruled in what most would consider the glory days of Israel, a united kingdom of Israel which lasted for 120 years, those three kings between them. After the king Solomon, there was a split in the nation. The nation divided into north and south. The ten northern tribes refused to follow Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and and so they broke away and they formed their own nation. They became known as the kingdom of Israel. The remaining two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, were known as the kingdom of Judah. So if you ever hear about Israel and Judah, that's where it came from. It was a divided kingdom, split to break up. There was tension and sometimes fighting between those two kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah, for over a century. The temple was in Jerusalem. That was down in Judah, the southern kingdom. And so Jeroboam, who was the king of the northern kingdom in Israel, he feared that his people would go down to to Judah, to Jerusalem, to the temple to worship and then their loyalties might get divided and they might want to realign with Judah. They might want to reestablish the United Kingdom. And he certainly didn't want that. And so he decided to set up their own religion in Israel. Now he realized if he did something entirely different and weird, nobody would follow. And so he, his, he aimed to make it familiar. A system of worship that, and, and a feast days that seemed like worship of Yahweh but it was just more convenient and comfortable. So he built two centers of worship. Before there was just one in Jerusalem. He built two centers of worship up in the north, and uh, and one in Bethel and one up in the north in Dan. And So no more long travels to Jerusalem were needed. He did away with the godly Levites as priests because they weren't, they weren't in favor of all of these changes and They decided to set up their own priesthood using just folks from average, ordinary folks that made it more popular. Then he also set up idols and places to worship them all through the land. The kingdom, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom never recovered from this sin. They never again truly followed Yahweh God. Nor did they ever have a king who followed God. Yet still, God reached out to the people and the kings of Israel. And you can read the history of both kingdoms, north and south, when you go back in the Scriptures and read First and Second Kings. But God kept reaching out to the people and to the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. He sent many prophets to them, the ones you would most note, Note from, if you go back and read 
in the Kings is you'd, you'd notice Elijah and Elisha. Both of them, the big prophets that we think of, were actually in the northern kingdom. 130 years passed by of this divided kingdom and with each new king in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel sank lower and lower politically, economically, and spiritually. And then, King Jeroboam II comes to the throne. He becomes king. During his 41 years in office, Israel became great again. As I wrote that line, it occurred to me, the people lived in peace. Neighboring countries respected them again. Their economy boomed. Housing starts were up. And I thought, you know, there's an awful lot of talk today about making America great again. And what most folks think of when they say that is exactly what Israel accomplished during this period of time we're focused in on in this study. As Jeroboam II is king, everything that people want to make, most folks want to make America great again is what happened in Israel. That's one reason it's so timely for us to do this study. To be reminded of God's perspective and of God's measure of the health and the greatness of a nation. As I said, God sent prophets to Israel. He sent His messengers to declare His Word to them. We have written records of just three of the prophets that He sent. And it's the ones we're focused on these months. Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. So today, with that long introduction, we come to the first of these three prophets. And we're going to cover them in the order as they appear on the scene. Jonah was the first one on the scene. If you've ever heard of any of the Old Testament prophets, you probably know the story of Jonah. He's the one that most Christians and many unbelievers as well would say, Oh yeah, I know that story. The story of Jonah, that's about the guy who got swallowed by the whale. And if you know the adventure in Odyssey version, that's when everybody yells, Big fish! Because if you know the text, he didn't get swallowed by a whale, it's a big fish. Jonah's such an unusual book in many ways. One of the reasons is because instead of the prophet telling us God's Word, God's message, the prophet's experience is God's message. The book is a literal, literary marvel with irony and wit and word plays and chiastic constructions. And if you don't know what that is, I'm not going to take time to tell you. It's got entertaining storyline, a sharp punchline, and a clever ending. And so some people, because of all of those things and the miracles in it, they say the book of Jonah is nothing but a parable. They would say that you don't really believe that Jonah was a real person who was swallowed by a fish and lived to tell about it and preach in Nineveh, do you? And my answer is absolutely. The story you are about to hear is true. Absolutely. 
Two big reasons I know that this story is a true story and not a parable. One of them is is that Jonah is a historical figure. Again, if you go back into the history books of the Old Testament, you go back to 2 Kings chapter 14, you would find this passage. Then he, Jeroboam the second, is the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. In other words, you don't find Jonah just as a made-up character over in a book to tell a parable story. You find Jonah in the history books as the real prophet And he is the one who actually, as Jeroboam comes to the throne, Jonah takes a word from God to the people of Israel. God, you see, has been looking at at both Israel and Judah and saying, they're they're suffering. Life has been hard over the last 130 years since the nation split. And God says, I'm going to do something about that. And He sent word through Jonah to King Jeroboam, your kingdom is going to prosper. Your borders are going to be restored. Things are going to go well. And they did. Probably what that meant is Jonah became a very popular preacher. (laughs) He was preaching a bit of prosperity theology and it was real. God said, I'm going to do it. And he did. So that's one reason. He's a historical person, a real person. Another reason is because, and this is a big one, Jesus believes this story. We won't take time to go there, but you can on, at your leisure go to Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11. There you'll see that Jesus calls Jonah a prophet. He treats him as a real historical person and a real prophet. He uses the reality of Jonah's life and of Jonah's experiences as an indictment of Israel in Jesus' day. And also he uses Jonah as a prophecy about his own resurrection. So, I find all that in the first verse of Jonah chapter 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, he was a real man. And the word of the Lord came and he said, verse 2, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah has a mission. God says, go, preach, to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria about 550 miles up to the northeast of Israel. That's that little red circle up there. About 550 miles up from Israel, it's in present-day Iraq. About 40 years before Jonah comes on the scene, in Assyria, which Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, Assyria was the dominant force in the Middle East. Matter of fact, Jeroboam, the king, the new king now, his great-grandfather, had to, who was King Jehu, had to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. He had come down and demanded, you know, he was the bully in the neighborhood. Give me your lunch money or I'll beat you up. And that's what they had to do. And so for 40 years, Assyria had been bullying everybody in the area, but now... And by the way, the Assyrians were not nice people. 
They were, matter of fact, they have a reputation for being among the most cruel and the most vicious of people in history. They were vicious in their treatment of conquered people. They delighted in torture and bloodshed. In the palace of King Ashurbanipal, an Assyrian king, in his palace in Nineveh, archaeologists find this relief on his palace wall. It is just a picture proudly depicting Assyrians torturing their captives, skinning them alive, pulling out their hair and their beards and taking off their lips and gouging their eyes out. And they just did all this for fun. Lovely people. The Assyrians were undoubtedly the most hated and the most feared people of their day. The good news was now during Jeroboam's reign, the Assyrians are having a bad century. They're in a state of decline. They're in a slump. And it allows all the surrounding nations to enjoy some peace and some freedom and some relief. But still, Nineveh is a great and very wicked city. And that's where God is calling Jonah to go. To go on a preaching mission. With that background, we might understand what happens next in verse 3. But it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is a rebel. God says, go this way. Jonah goes the other way. He gets a direct message from God. I know I've heard some of you say before, and I know I have said it myself many times, you know, if I just had a direct message from God, you know, send a little bolt of lightning and a voice from heaven, you know, I'd go, yes, sir, God, wow, you know. Forever all doubts about whether God exists or gone and forever any question of should I follow Him or not or do I want to... It'd all be gone. As soon as I heard directly from God, done, right? (laughs) Just to prove that no, that doesn't work. Here's the prophet of God. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah, "Eh, I don't think so. See, we're rebels at heart. And he goes, instead of going to the north and east 550 miles, he takes a little 35-mile jaunt to the coastline of Israel, to Joppa. And there he grabs a ship and heads to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? Southern coast of Spain. It is literally as far as you could go. The last place on planet Earth from their perspective. 2,500 miles by ship. And we already know the story. This isn't going to go well. Verses 4-6. through six. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each one cried out to his God. And they each cried, and they, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the gods will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Huge storm comes. The ship is about to break up. How bad is the storm? Well, seasoned sailors are absolutely terrified. Sailors are a pretty calm bunch of folks. <laughs> They're not easily shook up. If you ever watch any of the National Geographic things on the, you know, the fishermen, or, and you follow them, you, you look at the stuff they do, you just go, wow, those guys are tough. So it was in that day. For these guys to start panicking and crying out, ah! it's bad. Again, how bad is it? It says that they throw their cargo overboard. Folks, that's their paycheck. They are just throwing their mortgages, their car titles, everything else. They're throwing it overboard. Because when they go, if they make it through this alive, they now have lost everything. That's how bad it is. But Jonah is down sleeping through the whole thing. He went down into his little cabin in a deck. And he's down there sleeping. Now how he's sleeping with the ship tossing and turning and, I don't know. Doesn't say. But what a picture it paints. Here's the prophet of God who's sleeping while people are desperate and in fear of dying. Ironically, the prophet is called to prayer, but not by the situation. He's called to prayer by a pagan sea captain who says, Hey, get up! Pray! More ironically, as we continue and as you look carefully, you'll realize that it still doesn't say that Jonah prayed. He's been called to pray, but it never says he does. The pagan sailors have been praying, but Jonah doesn't pray. May I offer an explanation why not? When you're running from God, you don't pray. Because you know He isn't listening. Or worse, you don't want to talk to Him. It's kind of like when you've offended your spouse. And I know you haven't done this, but you know of people who have. You've offended your spouse. You know that you're in the wrong. You know that they are angry with you. You know you need to make it right. But you haven't done it and you won't do it because you're proud. You've been there? And then in that situation, you know how hard it is to ask your spouse for a favor? <laughs> you won't do it. Because you can't do it. Not in that situation. That's Jonah and why he won't pray. He's so selfish that he won't humble himself and pray even at the expense of the lives and the livelihood of other people. He's a prophet. He's a preacher. He's supposed to pray. It's his job. But he won't do it. What a self-focused guy. 
Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So the guys are desperately trying to figure out what's going on. They figure this storm is so weird and so bizarre and so un- it must be supernatural. And they decide, you know, whose fault is this? Something's going on. Somebody's angered the gods and God plays with them as they, as they cast lots and he says, it's going to work. <laughs> the lot falls on Jonah and they go to Jonah. What have you done? What, what's going on? And questions hit and Jonah like a good Jew, a good Christian, he spits out perfect theology. I fear the God, the Lord God Yahweh, who has made heaven and earth. A Hebrew. And the sailor's response, my paraphrase, is, Are you insane or stupid? If your God really is the Creator of everything and He is all-powerful, if He really is God and Lord, if He's sovereign, these things don't add up. It's impossible to run and foolish to run from God like that. Jonah is is oblivious to the truth that the sailors can see perfectly clearly. You can't hide from God, Jonah. What you say you believe doesn't match up with what you are doing. Jonah is completely irrational. May I say that that's almost always the case with sin for a believer? We know the truth. We confess the truth. And yet somehow we claim an exception for ourselves to excuse our sin. Totally illogical. If we were looking at somebody else, we'd say, that's stupid, that's illogical. You can't do that, you shouldn't do that. But when it's us, have you, have you been there? Like every time you sin? If it were in somebody else, you'd look at it and say, you're, you're so wrong, brother. Oh, sister, you need to fix that in your life. But in our life, well, there's a perfectly good excuse and you know it's okay and it'll work out this time. Beware. Sin blinds us. It leads us to act irrationally. That's why the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, warns us against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jonah has been exposed and he really doesn't see the hypocrisy and the folly of his way. You notice, by the way, what his words were. He says, I fear the Lord. 
And he, everybody says, no, you don't. If you did, you wouldn't be here. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. Because I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as he pleased, as pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Wow. Jonah is amazingly stubborn. The storm gets worse. The sailors say, what do we need to do? And Jonah says, well, you know, I know that this is my fault. I know that God is doing this. So what you got to do is throw me overboard. And ultimately they did. The perfect storm ended the instant Jonah hits the water. It's like you're in a wave pool. You know, if you've been there at the water park and they turn the machine off and just... It says, I love it, the sailors feared the Lord. No kidding. This massive, perfect storm. And you throw this guy in. Man, they had a worship service on the deck of the ship right then. That's what it says they did. They said, oh, Lord. At first, by the way, they pray. Say, Lord, don't count this against us. He told us to do it. You know. And now they're going, Lord, you really are God. They have a worship service. They make sacrifices and make vows. Three quick things I note about this stubborn guy. Jonah, the preacher, knows that God is behind this, but he is so stubborn, he prefers to die rather than to repent. Have you ever been there? Just so stuck on your getting your way, you just soon die as to admit that you're wrong. Hmm. Jonah is so selfishly stubborn that he still shows zero concern for the physical and the spiritual peril of the sailors. In order for these guys to be saved, on the, physically saved on the ship, Jonah needs to leave the boat. But he doesn't jump. He says, what do you need to do to be saved? Well, you have to throw me overboard. I just find that interesting. If he really thinks the answer is him getting out of the boat, why doesn't he jump? Because he is so selfishly stubborn. He's willing to let these guys die. 
And in order for them to be saved spiritually, they need to hear about Yahweh and trust in Him. And He really doesn't care. He's willing to let them die and go to hell. He's a great preacher. Thirdly, Jonah the preacher is so stubborn, the pagan sailors are shown, they're demonstrated to be more righteous than he is. The pagan sailors care about Jonah's life so much that when Jonah says, if you want to be saved, throw me in the ocean. And what do they do? They keep, they keep paddling trying to get back to shore. They've got every guy manning the oars. They're doing everything they can do to how do we get this ship turned around and save this guy's life. Meanwhile, he's willing to let them all die. They're concerned about offending God. Oh, Lord, please. Don't be offended when we throw him in the ocean. Jonah could care less about offending God. The sailors pray to Yahweh, and if we you read this whole entire chapter, and nowhere does Jonah pray. Not till next week, Jonah chapter two. These sailors worship Yahweh and make vows to Him, but Jonah just went overboard rather than fulfill his commitment to God. The pagan sailors are shown to be more righteous than Jonah. Last verse. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The story should have ended with Jonah drowning. But God in His grace prepares a fish. Not to punish Jonah, but rather to save him. Because God still has plans for Jonah. And because there's more for us to learn from Jonah. So much to say about this story. What a marvelous one already. We need to remember the audience in this story is Israel. A nation that is comfortable and prosperous and smug in their position as the people of God. You see, despite everything else in Israel, these people still consider themselves God's people. After all, God made a covenant, a contract with us back with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. They're self-absorbed and self-righteous and yet rebellious and so stubborn that they will die rather than admit that they are wrong and repent. What God intends is that as they look at Jonah and as they see this His story, And as they look at his absurd foolishness, and as they point an accusing finger at Jonah going, how could you be such a fool? There's all those fingers pointing right back. And maybe when they do that, they'll realize, we need to repent. Of course, all these things were written for our instruction as well. And as sure as we point the finger at Israel or at Jonah, the fingers are pointing back at us. 
And I think that if we look carefully, we just might see that there's a bit of Jonah in us when we examine our own heart. Maybe it's a rebellious attitude towards God. Somehow we think, you think, that we know better than God. Maybe if we just run fast enough and far enough the other direction from whatever it is we know God wants us to do, then maybe we can get away. Maybe it's a tendency to be irrational. We know the truth, but we conveniently deny that it really applies to us and somehow this sin in my life will work out okay. Maybe you're there today. You need to confront the truth. Maybe you quit praying because you're too stubborn to confess and to repent from some sin in your life. Reality is, for all of us, God, like Jonah, has called, God has called us to a mission. But maybe we've grown calloused towards the needs of the world because we're caught up with ourselves or we're caught up in sin. I don't know what lesson God has for you this morning, but there's an awful lot of possibilities in this story. Let's pray. Father God, the reality is so much of this applies to us. I pray that You'd convict us where we need convicting. That You would encourage us not to live like Jonah. Rather to be faithful servants. Not to live in rebellion. Not to live in sin. Not to live in complacency. But to follow You with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. For You are a great God of great grace. It's one of the big themes of this book. Lord, may we not, take it, may we not abuse that grace, but rather, because of it, love You with all, everything we have. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.